Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. With the vaccine being successfully rolled out and a new plan to get the country out of lockdown, things are looking up for Boris Johnson's government. As a result, critics have turned on Labour and its leadership under Keir Starmer. One area of argument has been around Starmer's move to embrace patriotism and whether critics think that he could be bolder or less bold in terms of setting out his vision for Britain. To help us make sense of this and related issues, we're delighted to welcome back Professor John Denham and for his second appearance on this podcast. Now, John, would you mind just setting out for listeners who might have missed your previous appearance, yourself, your background, and why you're so well-placed to discuss these issues? First of all, welcome and thanks for coming back. Thanks, and it's good to be on the podcast again. I, I was a Labour MP for over 20 years. I was 10 years a, a Labour minister. I was PPS to Ed Miliband when he was leader of the Labour Party. Um, and since leaving Parliament, I've been a professor of English identity and politics at the Centre for English Identity and Politics at Southampton University. So I've taken a, a particular interest in the relationship between national identity and people's political choices. Thanks, John. And that's certainly why you're so well-placed to discuss these issues with us. And just before we get going, Steve, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you both and welcome back, John. Good. Good to be here. So let's start with Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party. So it's seemingly come under pressure recently as the internal criticism has ramped up. Steve, could you talk to us about the political context in, in particular? Yeah, very happy to. And um, this has been a sort of rolling debate for a few weeks. It's probably worth uh, for listeners um, just to recap a bit, although I suspect some of these debates will be pretty familiar. Um, there appear to be two obvious camps on, on the kind of question of how Starmer's doing and how Labour are doing. On the first camp, you've got people who say that Labour still trails in the polls um, by, by a small margin, despite what's seen by many as a pretty disastrous handling of the pandemic. Um, and many seemingly on the left of uh, politics, left Labour Party, who feel somewhat antagonised by the Starmer leadership. And they are saying, essentially, he's not doing that well and he's won you know, people up and, and they're, they're unimpressed. He's been unable to cut through or, or in their own description, they say he's been un- unable to cut through. The other camp is saying that actually, well, look at where Labour started. I think it was 20 odd points behind the Conservatives uh, some months ago. And they really narrowed that gap at a time when most oppositions around the world are really struggling because lots of voters have seen their governments uh, handle a very difficult situation and have somewhat ride around the flag. Um, so you've got this, I think, for the first time in Starmer's leadership, a real debate about whether he's doing well or badly. I think the first few months were perceived very positively. Um, uh, and that's, I think, where we are. So in the midst of that context, you have an, earlier in this month, the 2nd of February, The Guardian ran a story uh, and they got hold of some leaked 
research um, by an agency called Republic. I, I hadn't heard of, but that's supposed to be the agency that was doing some work for Labour on its position and strategy. Um, and a particular sort of recommendation from that league really ignited this debate about patriotism, national, national identities and the left. And, and the sort of quote from that was that Labour should use the flag, veterans and dressing smartly at war memorials, etc., to give voters a sense of authentic values alignment. And this is what's caused this debate and linked it to patriotism. And you had various figures feeling uh, uneasy about that. Um, and one was uh, Clive Lewis MP. Uh, and he said, and this is a Guardian quote, he said, Tory parties have absorbed UKIP and now Labour appears to be absorbing the language and symbols of the Tory party. And he goes on to say, it's not patriotism, it's fatherlandism. There's a better way to build social cohesion than moving down the track of the nativist right. And, and this has been kind of the tone of the debate that we've been seeing um, around Starmer and patriotism and Labour. So, John, who better to discuss Labour and patriotism? So we'd like to get some of your insights around these issues. So I suppose, first of all, what do you make about the, the debate controversy as a whole around Labour's whether moves or debated moves towards being more patriotic overtly in its messaging? Well, let's, have, let's talk about two things separately. The first is how important is it to Labour to be seen as a patriotic party? And then secondly, some of the criticism that's been put out there. Um, the, the reality is that it's very difficult to get elected in this country if you're not seen as a patriotic party. Uh, and that is simply because most voters are 70% of voters, and this is in February, a poll at the time of, of this row, 70% of the people describe themselves as very or fairly patriotic. Only a third of the same voters thought that the Labour Party was very or fairly patriotic. So that's a pretty large chunk of people whose first reaction of the Labour Party is, I am patriotic, they are not. And that's a real difficulty because the fundamental relationship in politics, long before you get to ideology or policy, is are these people like me and will they stand up for people like me when it matters? And on something as basic as whether you're perceived to love your country or not, that's a pretty big gap if you are seen to be outside that. So I, the reality is that Labour, I suppose, could have a strategy of saying, well, OK, but there's 30 percent of the population who are not patriotic. Let's try and concentrate on those. and Let's hope the seats fall out in the right places and we win. But um, that's pretty much what was tried uh, at the last general election. And it's very difficult, unless demographics change a lot over the next few years, to see that changing. Maybe in 20, 30 years' time it will be different. So there you are. You have to be seen as a patriotic party. And I think some of those who criticised the initiative were responding partly to what was a leak spun in a very damaging way, trying to wreck the whole strategy. And I've heard Clive Lewis, for example, speak passionately about the St George's Cross and being English at a Labour Party fringe meeting. So you sort of think, well, hold on, you've got to be a bit consistent here in, 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 in your approach. But having said that, there is a problem. And that is, if you like, there are... You can't win without being patriotic. There aren't many votes in being patriotic itself. It's just the sort of the, the threshold that you have to cross. And I think the real challenge now is, as Labour takes this forward, is the national story we tell. So our patriotism is a bit more than loving the country. It's about talking about what sort of society we want to build. So is it just a 
a way to be sort of in the game rather than an end in itself. Is that how you, you think we well, should I, I think it is a platform to tell a national story about who is really serving the national interest. So, for example, take crony contracts and all of these contracts are being handed out by the Tories to Tory donors, to friends of Tory ministers and all the rest of it. It's pretty clear, isn't it, that that is not an exercise that is in the national interest. However much Matt Hancock tries to claim that there weren't any PPE shortages and that was because the landlord of his local pub was so helpful, uh, the reality is this is organising the system so that a relatively small number of people benefit at the expense of the rest of the nation. Now, I think where Labour's story uh, needs to go next, and I think because they raised the issue of crony contracts, it's going there, is to say... Actually, what, is, what matters is who is really serving this country? Who benefits from the different policies that different political parties put forward? Who is really working in the national interest? So you go beyond, if you like, the necessary but, but, but um, thin layer of, of, uh, of, of, of flags or of, uh, of loyalty to the armed forces or whatever towards a much more profound description of what sort of country we want to be. And how does this play among different groups? So you've talked about that 70-30 split. I mean, is it the same with ethnic minorities, graduates, different sort of demographics? How does it play out across the different things, uh, different aspects? Well, without, of the, without, going, without going through the numbers in detail, in general, ethnic minorities are, if anything, more patriotic than the wider population. So it doesn't go down badly at all. And actually, um, amongst ethnic minorities... British imagery um, tends to be more powerful than Welsh, Scottish or English imagery. Um, so I don't think there's an issue there. It is certainly true that amongst the liberal left graduate cosmopolitan population, there is less adherence to, to patriotism and to loving the nation. But although that group's been growing in size in recent years, it's by no means at the size where it can tip the balance electorally. Labour needs to win those who feel patriotic. It also needs to win those who um, want to see a St George Cross or a, or, or a dragon or a saltire as well in the imagery that the party uses because those national identities are important to people. So just before we go on to some of the specifics on English identity, I just want to get your insight into how it's possible to move potentially beyond the flags but to gain that greater sense that it's it's really meant so to go from symbolism to true feeling well i i think it's about how you talk about the nation um so if you took uh, keir starmer's recent business speech he um talked about the british recovery f fund right now in a lot of the discussion that happened because that's a new idea this was debated as though it was an alternative financial product to an ISA or something like that. But at the heart of that is a very profound idea that building the nation back up after COVID and after Brexit is something to which everybody can contribute by financially, through work, through voluntary effort. And if you tell that story of a nation, 
you're creating a very different vision of the future to a Conservative Party that over a long period of time has organised privatisation, organised the financial markets, organised the tax system, so that a relatively, or indeed very small number of privileged people are extracting wealth from the economy at the expense of the rest of us. So do you see what I mean? I mean you start with the sort of, the imagery is necessary, but what matters beyond that is how you tell a patriotic story. I mean, after all, um, when Labour came out of the Second World War, Labour didn't say, well, we and the Conservatives are on the same side during this war. We didn't have much to divide us. The Labour slogan was, let's win the peace. This was an appeal to people to talk about what sort of nation do we want in the future? Because going back to the nation that we had had before in the 1930s wasn't working for most people in this country. So you, your, the patriotism was not in doubt. The really important thing electorally then, once you've established that, is how you talk about the nation in the future. So let's move on to England. The last time you were here, you mentioned the importance of politics of England. So let's address that. So what role does English patriotism play within the politics that you've discussed? And what role should it play? Well, I think it's a fairly straightforward thing. It's sort of both very important and quite small, if that doesn't sound like a contradiction in terms. There are a significant number of English voters who primarily describe themselves as English before they describe themselves as British. That doesn't mean they they, they reject Britishness, but they actually think of themselves as English. When they talk about people like us and people where we live are English, they're very often having a strong English identity is very much associated with also belonging to a part of England. So you're Yorkshire and England or you're Devon and England. So you have this strong sense of identity. Now, in general, what people want is for that to be acknowledged not for them to be ignored, not to feel that if you are English, you don't count to the people who who live in the cities, the people who are in power, the parties that only talk about Britain, never talk about England. So actually the shift that is needed to acknowledging that people feel English, feel proud of being English, live in a place that they think of as England, it's, it's quite a small shift in language, but it's one that is crucially important. You've got, you've got to remember, back in 2019... Um, If you broadly divide the electorate into people who think they're more English than British, equally English and British, and more British than English, in 2019, that disastrous election result, Labour actually won amongst the people who were more British than English. It lost amongst the other two groups, to whom English identity is that much more important. So in some ways, what the party needs to do is quite small, but actually not doing it will cost us a lot. So it's like patriotism generally. So the next question that I wanted to ask was about England's place within the union. But something that I want to draw out from what you've just spoken about is why why England is not spoken about. Given that England forms 85% in terms of population or, or thereabouts of the United Kingdom, why is it that it is the, the dominant part that isn't discussed in so much detail or embraced with so much enthusiasm compared to, say, Scottish nationalism, which the SNP have mobilised very successfully? There are two quite separate reasons for that. Within the Labour Party, as David Evans, the General Secretary, said this week, people in the Labour Party are very self-conscious about talking about English identity. The great majority of those that we need to win back to the Labour Party 
aren't. So the Labour Party has a problem in its head in not talking about English identity because it's got mixed up with all sorts of ideas that this is about the far right or racism or whatever. That's a problem we've got to overcome. The bigger reason why England isn't talked about is a product of history. The union always had this ambiguous view in which the English, and I mean the English as a whole, but particularly the English elite, regarded the union as the extension of England. So it was really England's party that let the Scots in. It was really England's monarchy that the Scots joined. This is not historically correct, but this is the story. So in other words, England's interests were equated with those of the Union, and the Union's interests were equated with those of England. And this is obvious, you see this in Boris Johnson, who's not an English nationalist, he's an Anglo-centric British nationalist, when he puts the interests of England and Brexit ahead of the relationships with Northern Ireland, with Wales and with Scotland. But the truth to tell is that the Labour Party in England is also an Anglo-centric British nationalist party. It also tends to say, well, let's talk about the Union, let's talk about Britain, let's not talk about England. And I'm afraid that history is catching up with us. It, It alienates people in Scotland, it alienates people in Wales, and it's a product of an imperial history and of the Second World War unified British state. We're now in a world where the politics of Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England are quite distinct. Different parties fight there, different parties win there, and it's time we actually recognised England and talked about England. But that means throwing off the imperial baggage that is still shared by too many Labour Party members. So what then do you think is the place of England and for England within the union? I mean, if, if the union... If the union is going to continue, it needs a purpose for the 21st century. So it's not going to be the union that existed because we had an empire, nor is it going to be the centralised union state that dominated after the Second World War and began to unravel in the 1960s and 1970s with the troubles in Northern Ireland, the rise of the Scottish nationalists, the rise of the Welsh language movement and so on. So it's going to work because you've got four parts of the union wanting to work together in the 21st century. That's the first point. The second point is, what is that reason? Well, to me, it is that the big challenges of the 21st century Uh, building a more equitable and inclusive economy and society and managing the transition to a zero carbon economy are better achieved in a larger union than each element trying to do it separately. So what you have to move steadily towards is a recognition that England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland are separate entities that choose to join together for the future because of our common reasons. And that means over time, England needs to develop, firstly, its own machinery of government, secondly, its own democracy, and thirdly, the union needs to be structured so that English ministers can't strut round taking decisions on behalf of the whole of the union because England's larger than Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland put together. What form do you think that democracy for England can or should or potentially might take? Well, one of of the problems for England is that England's the only part of the union that's not had a debate, let alone a referendum, on how it's governed in the past 20 years. They've had them in Wales, they've had them in Northern Ireland, they've had them in Scotland. We've never even had that debate. And in my view, 
if the citizen, if the Constitutional Commission the party is talking about now broadens out properly, uh, as Rachel Reeves was saying last Saturday at an English Labour Network conference, you know, to engage people who are not in the Labour Party, people who are in other parties, people in civic society, maybe we get that discussion, that debate. My guess, and this is looking at the opinion polls before that debate's taken place, is that you will probably end up with people backing a what you call a dual mandate Westminster. In other words, you elect MPs to Westminster, but the English MPs make the laws entirely for England. You end up with a machinery of government for England. At the moment, England is a real place with real people in it. There is no machinery of government that coordinates government policy towards England, even though English policy is different from Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish policy on most issues. And so I think you gradually evolve that sort of democratic structure for England within the existing institutions. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe people... Sorry, sorry, is that an enhanced English fight for English laws? Well, it's a proper one. So, so in other words, instead of a system where the House of Commons can veto what English MPs want and a system in which English MPs have no ability to initiate legislation where no ministers bring forward legislation just for England, you have a proper democracy in which laws from beginning to end, if they apply only to England, are made by English MPs. That's where the, the majority of English residents have been in favour of that for 20 years in all the polls. So, you know, if you look at something like a parliament, there's always more in favour of it than against, but it's not an absolute majority. There's been an absolute majority support for that in the English public for the past 20 years. And that's what I think people would support if we had a proper deliberative assembly. Um, so finally on, on this, do you think that there is a, um, a support for perhaps as well as that, not necessarily instead of greater representation at local level, that people yes. can feel more engaged, more listened to it with greater devolution within England, which that's, I don't get into sort of, you know, balkanising England. No, that is ab that's absolutely true. So, again, on the polling, people are totally opposed to breaking England in, into regions. Um, they don't live in regions, most places, they don't identify with them, they don't want England broken up. So when you talk about national policy, national legislation, they want that made at an English level. And, and people have studied this in great detail, it's always the same. However, within that, when it comes down to how is policy applied, um, how are local priorities for delivering the health service or social care established? Uh, when it comes down to how much of the resource of the country is really controlled at local level, then people are also in favour of that. So I think that, you know, if, if the people of England were given a choice, they would say, let's make our laws democratically at national level and let's have power dispersed throughout England. And that's pretty clear. That's where most of the polling is pointing. Brilliant. So let's try to sort of pull these threads together by you talked about the constitutional convention so what other measures could labor take to address the wants and needs of england specifically labor ones so you talked about some of these things about having a um a sort of dual mandate parliament but is there anything else that you'd like labor to commit to well i'd, I'd like i'd like labor to do uh, a, a number of things firstly i would like labor to talk about England when it's talking about England. 
normally when the Labour Party talks about England, it means Britain, even though Britain is actually Wales, Scotland and England. And so Labour often, you'll often get a Labour education or health spokesperson talking about the country when they're only talking about England because their remit only covers England. Um, we need to be prouder of a party as a party of the party that was the party of devolution to Wales and Scotland, but also talk now about addressing the shortfall in England. So talk about England, talk about English policy, uh, show a pride in English identity. A lot of it is about language. And where things specifically apply to England, say England. Steve, did you want to come in? Yeah, I wanted to to sort of circle this all back, I think, to where we where we started and try and understand the two different, well, two very linked debates we've been having about patriotism in general and England in the context of where Labour is. Um, so, John, I wondered how you understand Labour's strategy with relation to these questions. Um, uh, and also, connectedly, what what do you think they, they should be or how do you think they should be approaching them? I, I think the, the challenge now is having laid down some of the groundwork is to bring the various different strands of things together. So it's very important that there isn't a box in one place marked constitutional change, which, let's face it, is pretty tedious for most people. Uh, and then you've got a box somewhere else, which is sort of ticking the boxes on patriotism and then a box somewhere else talking about whose interest the, is the country running. What you need to do is draw those together and say what our love of our country tells us is that we don't want it run by the sort of people who hand out crony contracts to their mates and put tip huge amounts of public money into companies like Serco and Deloitte and ignore the proper uh, national servants who are looking after us and don't pay carers properly. So in other words, you draw those things together. And the reason the reason that we want to devolve power is actually we believe that if the people have got more control over what's happening where they live, then that's going to make things um, work better. Public services will be better. The reason that we want to reform the union is because actually we can achieve more on things like climate change, zero carbon economy, a more inclusive society if the union is run differently so that England isn't bossing Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland around, but where the people of England can make their own decisions for England itself. So I think the trick now is firstly to bring these strands together. And secondly, the, the old thing that I learned back in the 1990s when we were opposition, you have to repeat the same messages over and over and over again. So, you know, I, I, for example, would love to be in a position where not a single Labour spokesperson was interviewed for the next six months who did not talk about crony contracts, right? Because it is one of the most symbolic things of what is corrupt about the Conservative government. But we can't say it once and then forget about it. We have to keep hammering the same points home. And that's not a separate issue to patriotism. It's about who loves the country and whose interests is the nation, the country being run for. And that's a really beautiful way to kind of sum it up. Um, something strikes me, though, about the examples you're giving, John, and you mentioned sort of crony capitalism, crony contracts and climate change. I noticed you didn't mention anything that could stray into identity politics or cultural territory. And I think often the terms of debate around identity and patriotism is on that territory. And so the obvious example is shortly after we talked to you last time, 
you've had the Black Lives Matter movement and all the uh, conversations that were had about our history um, following that. Uh, and there's also a truism that is often mentioned by sort of pundits that Labour should or wants to avoid that territory. Um, so are, it, implicit in your strategy, are you saying Labour should avoid that um, and talk about the economic things in, I suppose, a patriotic way? Or, or should Labour have a story to tell about um, culturally what modern Britain looks like? Well, I, th- I think Labour has to have that story. But what Labour needs to do is to understand that a culture war that is driven by the extremes alienates most people. So, you know, that section of the population that genuinely wants to live in a society, for example, with completely open borders is pretty small. Uh, So is the group that rejects diversity entirely. Most people are somewhere between the two. And I think a Labour Party that wants to be in, in, in government needs to be articulating the views of the centre ground if you take the rows about history. I mean, I always give the example of my own father and Winston Churchill. Dad joined the RAF from his Yorkshire mining village. Uh, When later I asked him what he thought about Churchill, he said, um, you know, Churchill was a great wartime leader. We wouldn't have won the war without him. When I asked him how he had voted in 1945 and did he vote for Churchill, he looked at me with genuine shock and he sort of said, how could I vote for a man like Winston Churchill? He's the man that led the opposition to the general strike, which of course was the great strike in his miners miners village. In other words, there is a history where we're all perfectly capable of saying the world does not divide into good people and bad people. That there were things done in empire that nobody would countenance or condone today, but we don't have to tell a story that nothing ever good happened in our history. We can have a history that rehabilitates the working class role in this country in fighting for rights. You know, people talk about British values. There's not a British value that wasn't fought for by the working people, men and women of this country over the past 200 years. So, you know, We've got a history and it's one we can share. And the polarised debate that sort of says it's all about the empire being bad or it's all about being proud of our history isn't where most people are. Now, if Labour chooses to fight a cultural war from one wing, it will lose. Uh, If Labour captures the centre ground on these issues, we will win. That, that's very much, and, and I, I really like that description, that's very much what we've been trying to explore in this podcast, is how do you have a non-divisive conversation about some of those issues? And I think that's a very good way of capturing it. One very quick follow-up, um, and this came from a conversation we had with Sonia Katwale, who's also interested in this issue, these issues, um, was that how important is tone in that? Because it is possible when telling a story about Britain from the left or centre-left, I think at times to be quite negative. Uh, and my instinct was that actually being aspirational for Britain maybe goes a long, a long way. Um, but I wonder, do you agree with that? Yes, because we're trying at the end of the day, I mean, dealing with history is important, but we're trying to resolve a, a, a debate about the future. That's the reason why we're doing all of this, if you're in politics. And you cannot capture the future if your overwhelming tone is about how awful we are, right? Unless we can tell the story of a nation whose people can be proud of what they have fought for and created in the past, they're not going to believe us if we think we can have a better future. And indeed, 
our message, and I always say this about the Labour Party, isn't vote Labour and we will make everything better for you. It's we believe in you, the people, and your ability to build a better nation. And our job is to help you achieve that. So if you're surrounded by negativity and how bad everybody is and how guilty and ashamed they should feel about everything, they're clearly not going to believe us if we then come along and say we're going to create a better future. Right. Well, thank you, John. I think we've covered all of the issues and come to a quite positive endpoint there. So once again, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your insights, which has been brilliant as always. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you very you. much for your time. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And thanks again to John. Great. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast and goodbye and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you for your time. Goodbye.